When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and today we'll be studying Alma 36 through 38 in the Book of Mormon. I've been looking forward to these chapters for a while now. It's kind of a break in the narrative. Most of Alma, we've spent our time building up the church, whether it's conversion or retention or reactivation. In two weeks, starting in Alma chapter 43, we'll begin two weeks of war chapters. That'll bring us to the end of the book. But for the next two weeks, we have a break in that action where Alma is teaching his three sons, Helaman and Shiblon today, and Corianton next week. One of the reasons I love these chapters so much is because I've had parenting on the mind for at least the last 19 years. In fact, let me take you back to 2001. My wife and I were expecting our first child. She was pregnant, I was showing, and both of us were stoked to become parents. It's something that we dreamed of for a long time, and it took a while after our marriage before we were finally blessed to be able to have children. For the first year and a half or so, it seemed like we weren't going to be able to have children. But after doctor visits and infertility specialists and a surgery, we were blessed with that miracle that we've been praying for and preparing for. Other than getting the nursery ready, most of my preparation had to do with scripture study. You see, the scriptures had always been my love, go figure. But I had begun something in the year 2000 that was new for me. You see, when I read the Book of Mormon every day, I kind of miss the New Testament. But when I study the New Testament, I miss the Old kind of wonder what Moses has been up to lately. But when I study the Old Testament, I really get lonely for Joseph Smith. I want to spend time in the Doctrine and Covenants. So in 2000, I figured I'd try something. I made a chart with all of the books of Scripture, and I calculated it out to see how much would I have to read of each book of Scripture to read the entire standard works in one year. So on January 1st, 2000, I started reading Genesis 1, and Matthew 1, and 1 Nephi 1, and Doctrine and Covenants 1, and Moses 1. It was an amazing experience. And I started to see connections from one book of Scripture to the other. All these various prophets really coming together as one cloud of witnesses, teaching and testifying of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was an awesome year. On December 31st, I finished Malachi and Revelation and Moroni and the Second Official Declaration and the Articles of Faith. Tons of time spent in the Scriptures that year, but it was totally worth it. In fact, worth it to the point of wanting to do it again the following year. But in 2001, I knew something would be different in my life. Our baby was due. She was due to arrive in April. She ended up coming on Easter Sunday, in fact. I had a seminary student that laughed and said, figures that our seminary teacher would have a child born on Easter Sunday with two biblical names. Well, guilty as charged. But to prepare for that day, I bought myself a new set of cheap scriptures, printed fatherhood on the spines, and once again went through the standard works, a little bit of every book every day, but just looking for principles about parenthood. I wanted to know how to be a father, and I wanted to learn from the father of us all as he revealed his will to his servants, the prophets. It was one of the most eye-opening experiences I'd ever had, not just in terms of what I learned about fatherhood, but what I learned about scripture study, because I found principles of parenthood in places I never would have expected. 
passages that would never appear in the topical guide under parenting. And one of the richest treasure troves that year was Alma 36 through 42, because it was so relevant. Here is a father teaching his sons exactly what I plan to be doing for my sons and daughters for the rest of their lives and mine. In fact, there's a passage in Alma 37 that to this day, I still remember as one of the most beautiful, eye-opening experiences I had that year of scripture study, because I saw a principle of parenthood that was completely unexpected. Because on the page, at least, it had nothing to do with parenting. But once translated by the power of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit opens the eyes of our understanding, right? That's what the scriptures say. Well, the Spirit helped me see something in a passage in Alma 37 that we'll get to shortly that has affected the way I've parented ever since. But let's start where Alma started, beginning with his words to his son Helaman. Mormon made it a point at the end of chapter 35 that Alma had gathered his sons together, but he gave each of them his charge separately. And I think that's important. As parents, there's a lot of things we do in the Mass. Family scripture study and family home evening, family church attendance, family vacations, those kinds of family things. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, I think the times that stand out most in my mind were one-on-one -on -one experiences I had with my mom or my dad. When I knew they weren't teaching everybody, they were teaching me. No wonder our ordinances are one by one. No wonder when Jesus came among the Nephites, he ministered to them one by one. David O. McKay even told fathers in a priesthood meeting once that part of our experience on Judgment Day will be God asking us how we parented each child. Not just what kind of a parent were you, but rather, how did you parent that child? How did you connect with this one? Did you recognize the individual needs of each individual child and treat them differently? Not in some kind of inequality, but rather to avoid some kind of equivalence between them all. And we'll see that clearly in these chapters. Two long chapters to Helaman, 36 and 37. A very short one to Shiblon in 38. And then next week, 39, 40, 41, 42. A whole lot to Corianton. And we'll see why he needed that next week. Well, Alma begins with Helaman in chapter 36, verse 1. My son. I love that he establishes the relationship from the very beginning. You're not just a random church member. Like so many other church members, I've spent my lifetime trying to shepherd back to God. You are my son. And it's in that role that I'm coming to you as your father. No other success can compensate for failure in the home, President McKay told us. And that even applies to success in church endeavors. Or as President Lee said, the most important work we do will be within the walls of our own homes. Well, the work that Alma did outside the walls of his own home was as important as it comes, wasn't it? And yet, even in his case, it is to his family that he has primary responsibility. So, my son, give ear. What a powerful verb. Not just, listen up. I got something to say to you. No, it's give ear. It's not even lend me your ears like Shakespeare's Brutus. It is give them to me. By the way, I've learned the hard way that our children will typically not give us their ears unless we have given them ours to begin with. My wife is the best example of that I've ever seen. My kids know they have their mother's ear and eye and heart, her full undivided attention. No wonder they tend to go to mom more than they go to dad, as I'm often trying to do a million things for a million people when the one that matters most is the one right in front of me. My wife often helps me to focus, 
to channel, to give my children the focus that they deserve, one-on-one. -on -one. And it's often in those times that they are willing to give me their ear. What a precious gift that is. And he asks him to give ear to my words. They may sound like God's. They are in a way. But they are being channeled through a person who has gained the personal testimony of them. It's like Elder McConkie said in his great final testimony, that the words of God had become his own words through the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, the same was the case with Alma here. So, my son, give ear to my words, for I swear unto you. This is testimony coming from the very beginning of this beautiful father-son experience. I need you to know what I know. That seed we talked about back in chapter 32, I planted it. I nourished it. It has grown up into a tree of life for me. And so I can testify of the things that I'm going to teach you. I hope our children know. Whether we're bearing formal testimonies to them, which might seem a little out of place in a one-on-one parent-child conversation, our children deserve to know that the things that we're teaching them specifically the spiritual things, the gospel truths, are coming from a place of conviction on our part. That we're not just checking boxes saying, well, we're supposed to do this. Section 68 of the Doctrine and Covenants warns me that your sins will be on my head if I don't explain these things to you. So I'm just trying to absolve myself of responsibility here, kid. No, our teaching must also be our testifying, backed up by the way we live. And what is Alma's testimony here? I swear unto you that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. Now what Alma just said is one of the most oft-repeated promises in the Book of Mormon, dating all the way back to Lehi. Obedience brings prosperity, which is always the case spiritually, even if it doesn't seem to be that way temporally. Now the fact that Alma begins this discussion with his son in terms of obedience is important because he'll end it with the same idea. In verse 30, he repeats, inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. The fact that chapter 36 both begins and ends with this same concept actually tips us off to the fact that this chapter is an amazing example of chiasmus, that ancient Hebrew poetic form where you start and end with the same idea and you work towards a kind of a climax, a crescendo, then decrescendo. You move in in one direction and then move back out in the opposite direction. Jack Welch was the one who discovered this poetic form throughout the Book of Mormon as a young missionary in Germany. I mean, what else are you going to do on a P-Day, right? But beyond that poetic form, I think the fact that this chapter is bookended with discussions or reminders of obedience is important. Because the bulk of this chapter will be about repentance, Alma's own mighty change, and the forgiveness he received for his sins. Now, I think repentance and forgiveness, the mercy of God because of his son, as Alma kept repeating back in chapter 33, is one of the most important things that any parent can teach any child, any church leader can teach any member, any missionary can teach any investigator. But what's interesting is repentance and forgiveness needs to be taught in the context of obedience, not separated from it. We need to teach mercy in the context of justice. It's like C.S. Lewis's great quote, that mercy needs to grow out of the crevices in the rock of justice. Because if it begins to proliferate in the marshlands of mere humanitarianism, then it doesn't actually help anybody. It simply excuses them from any expectation. It enables poor behavior. 
Mercy and justice are one of those contraries that needs to be proven, one of those positive paradoxes where both elements are essential. And as is often the case, I think order is key. This chapter that will spend the bulk of its time on mercy starts with justice. Or in other words, the bulk of its time will be on forgiveness and repentance, but we need to begin it and end it with reminders of God's expectation of obedience. If you start raising your kids on mercy alone, I don't think justice will ever be able to get a word in edgewise. If you only teach repentance and never get around to teaching obedience, they'll probably wonder, well, what am I repenting of? We may take forgiveness for granted or think that mercy doesn't mean much, but in the context of obedience, that these are the commandments of God, we establish that expectation and then allow mercy, grace, atonement, forgiveness, repentance to be able to come in to help people know how they're able to live within this expectation of obedience. Striking that balance in any of these contraries is always difficult. And this is just one of the many examples where the order of which one comes first really is important. As Elder Maxwell once said, quoting a symphony orchestra conductor, never encourage the brass section or you'll never hear the strings again. Some gospel principles just sound louder in our ears or they're ones that we really want to hear. They come more easily to us. No wonder, therefore, that other principles, the softer ones, are the ones that are perhaps less pleasing to the ear. Often those are the ones that have to be taught more frequently or more intensely, or in this case, taught first and taught last, with all the comforting words of repentance and forgiveness in the middle. Now in verse 2, Alma says to his son what he has said to the church repeatedly. To do as I have done in remembering the captivity of our fathers. They were in bondage. None could deliver them except it was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he surely did deliver them in their afflictions. This is so similar to what Alma said when shaping up the church in Zarahemla back in Alma chapter 5. But the changed context does make a beautiful difference. It's one thing to teach these things from the pulpit. Can you do it from the couch? It's one thing to discuss things in ward council. Well, are we bringing them up in family council? If the only teaching we do is with our priesthood leader hat on or our Relief Society presidency hat on, it may never get to the people who need it most. I feel that way all the time because I'm always teaching. And often I wonder, have I taught these principles this clearly or this intentionally to my own children? Alma is making sure he does just that. He says in verse 3 to this young son, Helaman, I beseech of thee that thou wilt hear my words. So listen to what I say and learn of me. So watch what I do. Both of those are essential in our parenting. And often our children do more of the second than they do of the first. Even if it looks like they aren't hearing our words, they tend to learn of us in terms of the things that we do, the way that we live. For I do know, Alma continues, again his testimony, that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. Notice that he's not saying that trusting in God excuses us from our adversities. Rather, it shows that God will be with us through them, supporting us in those trials. The fellowship of sufferings, as Paul called it. In 4 and 5, you see Alma's humility coming through. He tells Helaman, I don't want you to think that I know these things of myself as if my intelligence or wisdom, my rational thought, allowed me to reach these conclusions. 
That's not how it came. It's not of the temporal mind, but it's the spiritual mind. This is not some kind of temporal scientific epistemology. It is a spiritual way of arriving at truth. That's what Alma 32 is all about. It's not the carnal mind. It's of God. He gives God all the credit for this testimony that he's received. If he hadn't been born of God, he wouldn't have known any of these things. But God has, by the mouth of his holy angel, made these things known unto me, he says, not of any worthiness of myself. This reminds me of Ammon talking with King Lamoni, where he keeps reiterating, I'm a man. I'm not the great spirit. I'm no different than you. Please don't put me on some pedestal that separates me from you. I'm on the same level, and just as God reached me, he will reach you. There's something powerful about a parent coming down to a child's level to make sure they understand. I don't know these things because I'm better. I wasn't made any different. I'm not wired in some superior way. I was born of God. That's how I know. You can be also, and that's how you'll know. Now, from verse 6 through verse 23, Alma then spends the book of this chapter describing his conversion experience to his son. And what an incredible teaching moment. It's like when Alma first met the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and he leads out with his conversion story. A great way to get to know someone. Well, obviously, father and son, they know each other well. But has Helaman ever heard this story directly from his father? Not just allusions from the pulpit, but personally and privately to be able to say to this son, this is how I came to know God. Now, at the beginning of his experience, verses 6 through about 10, he repeats things that we already know, having studied Mosiah chapter 27. But starting in verse 11, we begin to see some details that we didn't see earlier when it was a third-person account someone else writing about Alma, instead of Alma talking about his own experience. So in verse 11, he says, The angel spake more things unto me, beyond that first shock and awe, attention grabber. And those things were heard by my brethren, but I did not hear them. For when I heard the words, If thou wilt be destroyed of thyself, seek no more to destroy the church of God, I was struck with such great fear and amazement, lest perhaps I should be destroyed, that I fell to the earth and I did hear no more. It's interesting to recognize that the angel's message went on, but Alma was oblivious to it. That, by the way, should give every teacher and every parent comfort. That sometimes when our kids or our students seem to tune us out, it might be because they heard what they absolutely needed to hear. And they, in fact, needed to dwell on that thought instead of move on to other thoughts. Don't assume that they're not hearing you. Perhaps it's the case that they really did hear, after all. In Alma's case, it was that realization that, wait a minute, I might actually be destroyed over these things? That lest perhaps I should be destroyed? It's like it's the first time it dawned on him, wait, this is real? It's real what I'm doing? It's real what Dad's been talking about? I'm not just playing games here? I think often when it comes to real conversion and real repentance, it begins with this coming to yourself moment of, what am I doing? This counts. This is the day and the time to prepare to meet God, as Amulek said back in chapter 34. This is the moment of the prodigal son, off in that far country, when he comes to himself. Wait a minute, there are consequences to my decision. I'm going to have to live with this. What am I doing? Well, once he was jolted into that sense of recognition, all kinds of other realizations began coming to him. In verse 13, I did remember all my sins 
Once I realized they counted, they all started coming back to haunt me. I remembered them. I remembered my sins, my iniquities. He says at the end of 13, I saw that I had rebelled against my God and that I had not kept his holy commandments. Notice the way he describes this. It's not just that I slacked off a bit, not just that I hadn't kept the commandments. I actually fought against them. I rebelled. This was not some kind of passive disobedience. This was active rebellion. But notice what he admits after this realization. I was rebelling against my God. It wasn't dad's God. It wasn't the church anymore. This was my father in heaven. He's starting to see what he's actually done. Rebelling against my God, not keeping his holy commandments. That's another admission. I can only imagine the adjectives he would have used to describe the commandments before this moment. Restrictive or lame or dumb or foolish, as the Antichrists often called them. No, these are holy commandments. I recognize that now, and I've broken them. This is my God. I admit that, and I've rebelled against him. Part of the power of Alma's repentance here is that he doesn't sugarcoat any of this. In verse 14, he says, I had murdered many of his children. In fact, that's the opposite of sugarcoating. This is putting things in the worst possible light. Because just in case we thought that actual physical murder was being committed, he clarifies, or rather, led them away unto destruction. But I love that he calls it murder first. I'm not trying to hide anything, justify, minimize. I'm taking this to a worst possible scenario. Destroying someone's soul. Isn't that spiritual murder? I think there's power that comes in, in pushing things to the extreme when we realize our own sins or when we confess them to Heavenly Father. Because too often, we do the opposite. We justify, we rationalize, we minimize, we excuse ourselves. And that's not the godly sorrow that God is seeking in us. Sometimes if we're unwilling to do this ourselves, God will help us in that direction. When Joseph Smith lost 116 pages, in section 3, Joseph is chided by the Lord and told that he has suffered the counsel of his director to be trampled upon from the beginning. That's strong language. Stronger, perhaps, than what Joseph might have expected or thought that he deserved. But God wasn't sugarcoating it. You didn't just ignore my preference when you asked if you could take the 116 pages and give them to Martin Harris. No, you trampled upon my counsel. And you've been doing that since the beginning. This is like when Jesus says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. When Peter was just trying to reassure Jesus, make him feel better that, Oh no, you won't get killed in Jerusalem. We'll, we'll defend you. Satan? Did, did he just call me Satan? Again, to paint a worst case scenario, to wake us up to the reality of our sins in hopes that that jolts us into a sense of contrition, of humility. Again, if we don't choose to be humble, we will be compelled to be. If we don't choose godly sorrow, then the sorrow of the damned may end up being the result. In that same 116 pages episode, this time in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says that Martin Harris had tried to destroy Joseph Smith. Again, I think Martin would be like, what are you talking about? No, I was trying to defend him. I'm just trying to help. Get all these doubters off my back. Just show them some kind of evidence. I'm not trying to destroy your work or destroy your servant. And yet the Lord could say, think about it, Martin. In a way, isn't what you did moving in that direction? By the way, if that's the way the Lord used destroy in section 10 with Martin, I think we need to soften our understanding of section 132 when the same word is used in conjunction with Emma Smith. 
Don't rush to conclusions in that text when it may be God's attempt to help wake us up, to help us see the end of the path that we are just beginning to walk along. Well, back to Alma's experience, having come to himself, realizing what he's done that is wrong, and reflecting on all the other things that he's done wrong, refusing to sugarcoat anything, but fully acknowledging his own sins and shortcomings. He then describes the godly sorrow that is filling him. This is strong language. Go back to verse 12. I was racked with eternal torment, for my soul was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all my sins. You notice the words he uses? He's describing torture devices. Think about the rack as a person is being pulled limbs from sockets. Think about being harrowed up under this grid with spikes that is used kind of as a, as a primitive plow. Chain it to an animal and then drag it along the ground as these spikes just tear up the earth and prepare it for planting. Well, this is what Alma is describing in terms of his own feelings. Racked, eternal torment, harrowed up, not minimized at all, but rather the greatest degree. In the middle of 13, I was tormented with the pains of hell. Or 16, for three days and nights I was racked, even with the pains of a damned soul. 17, I was racked with torment. I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins. You don't get much stronger language than this. And like I said, it describes godly sorrow beautifully. As Paul describes godly sorrow, that's what gives us this, this zeal, this revenge. It's part of those labor pains that result in rebirth through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he do with this godly sorrow? There comes a point in our repentance where we need to admit, to confess, to face judgment. We see that most clearly back in verse 14 where he says that the very thought of coming into the presence of my God, again, he's accepting, this is my God, the one I've rejected, but he is mine because I am his. There's no getting around that. But the very thought of coming into his presence did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. This is the same Alma that back in chapter 12 said that in this awful state of unrepentant sin, we shall not dare to look up to our God. We would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us to hide us from his presence. Well, even the mountains weren't enough in this case, because here in verse 15 he pleads, Oh, thought I, that I could be banished and become extinct, both soul and body, that I might not be brought to stand in the presence of my God to be judged of my deeds. Think of that, not just buried somewhere, but banished. Not just hidden from God's all-seeing eye, but extinct, like I didn't even exist. God could scour all of creation. I'm not there. But it's at that moment that instead of trying to run away from God, he turns to him. This is the essential moment in repentance. As I was thus racked with torment, he says in 17, while I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins, behold, I remembered. To this point, he's been remembering all his sins. Well, now he remembers that there is a way to escape them. I remember to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. You see how nonspecific he is in that? 
he really must not have been paying very good attention in family home evening or family scripture study. This is just one Jesus Christ. He's a son of God. He doesn't seem to have a clear conception. But thankfully, he remembered just enough. Dad talked about it often enough that even through a muddled mind and a hardened heart, his son got something. This is so similar to Enos and Jacob, his father. Remember when Enos talks about being out in the wilderness hunting beasts and the words that he had often heard his father speak concerning Jesus Christ, the joy of the saints, began to rest upon his soul. I hear Alma is having a similar experience. Teach and reteach. Give your children as many opportunities as they might need in hopes that something will stick in their memory when they most need it. It's like what Amulek said back in chapter 34. These things have been taught bountifully to you to the point that it is impossible that you could be ignorant of these things. My hope is that my children, you cannot get out of my house without knowing Christ. Not just one Jesus, but the living Christ. Not just a son of God like we all are, but the only begotten son of God in the flesh. Know him, know his atonement, and you'll know how to come home, no matter how far you've strayed. Now, what did Alma do with that faint memory from 17? In 18, he says, as my mind caught hold upon this thought. Can you picture someone falling and just struggling to grab hold of anything within reach? White knuckled grip. This is all I've got hope to hold on to. Caught hold is the same verb used in Lehi's dream to describe what people did with the iron rod, the word of God that leads us to the love of God. That's the experience that Alma is having. And he grabs hold, he catches hold of it and cries within his heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. Again, full feeling here, no longer past feeling having been struck with fear and amazement over the possibility and reality of his self-destruction, the gall of bitterness. Jesus knows what that tastes like, having drained the bitter cup himself, encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. If he feels encircled, he doesn't think there's any way out. If he considers them everlasting, then there's no changing that. Is there any hope for me? Oh, Jesus, have mercy, since justice will leave me condemned to these chains forever. Well, having turned to God with such remorse, such contrition, such godly sorrow, and having begged God for his mercy, Alma receives it. And better yet, he accepts it. Verse 19, now behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. Notice he didn't say, I could remember my sins no more. He admits it. The memory of my sins remained. But I wasn't harrowed up by them anymore. The pain associated with those memories was now gone. That's one of the best ways to know of our forgiveness, to accept the grace and mercy that the Lord is offering us that when we reflect upon those sins, there's a degree of distance. It's like it said at the end of Mosiah chapter 26, those sins are no longer ours. They're just the sins that we happened to commit in a previous life, it seems. 
some other person that I no longer recognize, having now been born of God. I remember that person, but I'm not haunted by him or her. I remember those sins, but the pain is gone. It's like when we look at a scar and we remember what caused it, but the pain is no longer present. And better yet, in the resurrection, even those scars are gone. As far as God is concerned, it's as if the wound never occurred. He remembers them no more, even when we do. Having accepted, having received that forgiveness, his response, his new feelings in verse 20, Oh, what joy, what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy. And in this beautiful line, as exceeding as was my pain. We see in this verse and the following verse that pain and joy almost seem to be mirror images of one another. And the deeper the pain, the higher the joy that results once we've repented of the sin that caused it to begin with. Maybe that's why he wants our sorrow to be godly, so that our joy can be godly as well. Maybe we have to be harrowed up so we'll truly appreciate what it feels like to be exalted on high. Maybe it's the fear of eternal torment that makes the promise of eternal life all the sweeter. Feeling racked at one point in order to truly appreciate what it's like to feel redeemed in another. You see why we shouldn't minimize our guilt? Because that would tend to minimize the joy that we receive in being freed from it. You see why God often takes people to a worst case scenario so that they understand the best case scenario for what it really is. Joy as exceeding as was my pain. In 21, I say unto you, my son, there could be nothing so exquisite and so bitter as were my pains. This sounds so much like Jesus in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants as he describes what he felt in Gethsemane. How sore you know not. How exquisite, same word you use here, how exquisite you know not. Yea, how hard to bear you know not. And yet just as his pains were exquisite and bitter, yea, again I say unto you, my son, that on the other hand, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. Doesn't that sound like the fruit of the tree of life? Nothing so exquisite or sweet? By the way, if those phrases about exquisite and bitter pain seem to apply to Jesus as he described his own atoning ordeal, then I believe that what Alma said about joy applies to Jesus as well. Can you picture him having said it is finished and given up the ghost, having ascended to his father, having been welcomed in by those in spirit paradise that were eagerly anticipating their own freedom from the bands of death. Can you picture Jesus saying the same? There can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. How great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. It reminds me of the verse in John chapter 16, where Jesus says, A woman, when she is in travail, when she's going through labor, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. That's a phrase Jesus used often to refer to his own atonement. My hour is not yet come. Or later, when it was time, my hour is come. It's amazing to think of my wife as she was going into the hospital, anticipating the pain she knew she was about to undergo to bring life into the world. 
to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not fearing evil, but fearing pain that she knew she was destined to experience. That is sorrow over the coming of that hour. And yet, as the verse continues, as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. I've often heard the joke that it's ironic that a woman can forget the anguish of childbirth within moments and yet will never forget if her husband forgets their anniversary. Some selective amnesia there, right? Well, wrong. It's not selective amnesia. It's pain being eclipsed by joy. That's childbirth. And that's spiritual rebirth for both the person repenting and the one who made repentance possible. I love to think of that for Jesus' sake, daunted by the coming of his hour in travail and sorrow as he suffered for our sins. But as soon as he was delivered from his act of delivering us, nothing but joy, and a joy that was as exquisite and sweet as the pain that he suffered. Remember, Amulek described it as infinite and eternal. I love the thought of Jesus having infinite and eternal joy now because a spiritual son or daughter is born into his world. Now in verse 22, in the aftermath of this incredible forgiveness, Alma says, Methought I saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Now this is the same kind of scene that John the Revelator sees in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. All creation surrounding God's throne in acts of worship and praise. But don't forget what Alma had just said a few verses before. In verse 15, remember, when he's wanting to be banished and extinct, both body and spirit. Why? Because he didn't want to be brought to stand in the presence of God. For three days he was racked with that fear. Please do not make me face my Father in heaven. Do not bring me into his presence. And in verse 22, his worst nightmare is happening. At least it was his worst nightmare only seven verses ago. I'd rather be extinct than face God. Well, here he is. I thought I saw him on his throne, surrounded by angels worshiping, singing, praising. But whereas in verse 15, he wanted to crawl into non-existence, how does verse 22 end? And my soul did long to be there. I just want to be with him. I just want to come. I want to join the heavenly hosts singing and praising God. What a change for him. Just one column ago, banishment. And now, can I please come and stay? What had happened in the course of seven verses? His mind had caught hold of Jesus. That God can be merciful. This God that he feared can instead be approached because of his son. When I was a kid and would do something wrong, very rarely, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, right. There would be times where I would do something and my mom would say, just wait till your father gets home. Those are dreaded words for any child. It's like, just take me now, mom. Just put me out of my misery. And I remember as a little elementary schooler, dreading dad coming home on days like that. 
usually I was the one singing, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. Not on days where I felt like banishment or extinction were better options for me. Since they weren't at the time, I came up with what I considered the next best thing. We had this little end table in our living room, pretty small. We just kept the old copies of church magazines in it. But on days when I feared my dad's disappointment, I would take out the magazines, hide them under the couch, and if I went in backwards, I could kind of force my hips and shoulders in through the door, pull my legs in, so I was in the fetal position, and then grab the back of the screw that held the knob on and close myself into welcome oblivion. I would hide myself in that tiny little end table and hope that when daddy came home, he wouldn't be able to find me. Well, the fact that I'm here today to tell the tale lets you know that I survived those experiences. In fact, I was none the worse for wear. My father taught me how to change. He taught me obedience and repentance, and he forgave. And I realized that those feelings that compelled me into the end table were unfounded, that I misjudged my father in thinking that his anger would overpower his compassion, not realizing that mercy would overpower justice. In my opinion, this passage is one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture for the mighty change of heart, a change of feelings toward our Father, our judge, that rather than executioner, he is attorney for the defense. And an attorney who's arguing a case before a judge who wants to be merciful towards us as well. May we not misjudge the Father or the Son, but know that we can come home. The Father of every prodigal has a robe and a ring and a fatted calf waiting for us. Just come. There's a beautiful passage in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 17, where he prays, Be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. So many of the words that Alma uses describe that terror that he assumed God to be, but he became his hope in the day of his own evil, just as Jeremiah described. Well, back to Alma 36. In verse 23, his limbs receive their strength again. He stands upon his feet and he manifests unto the people that he had been born of God. Talk about sharing the good news. He allows other people to participate in his own change as he shares his change with them. He then tries to make things right, both vertically with God and horizontally with others. Remember, he had been guilty of what he called many murders, right? Well, this was a spiritual slaughter he did want to repair. And so in 24, from that time even until now, I have labored without ceasing that I might bring souls unto repentance. This is the same, oh, that I were an angel, Alma, that we met back in chapter 29, doing for others what the angel had done for him, that I might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy of which I did taste, that they might also be born of God and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And then 25, now behold, O my son, the Lord doth give me exceedingly great joy in the fruit of my labors. I love that Alma is willing to allow himself to feel that. He doesn't keep beating himself up over things. He allowed the pain to be taken along with the sins, that he was willingly giving up to God, that his preaching was not merely a work of penance. 
another day on the chain gang trying to work off his debt to society. No, I've been freed. And I want everyone to feel this same freedom. I've been forgiven. I've been granted great joy. And I accept it humbly and gratefully. How I want everyone else to feel it as well. And they did. Verse 26, because of the word which he has imparted unto me, behold, many have been born of God and have tasted as I have tasted and have seen eye to eye as I have seen. Therefore, they do know of these things of which I have spoken as I do know. And the knowledge which I have, which we all have, is of God. I love that he says, they've seen eye to eye as I've seen. I wonder which eyes he's talking about. One possibility is looking yourself in the eye. Can you do that? Can you look yourself in the mirror and feel forgiven for the sins that you know you've committed, the ones you still remember? But can you acknowledge that the pain is gone? Can you see yourself eye to eye? That's been one of the most fascinating things for me in editing these videos because I'm staring at myself eye to eye for hours on end. And as painful as that often feels, there is a powerful thing about testifying to yourself and knowing that you are being honest, seeing eye to eye with myself. Another possibility is to see eye to eye with God, that I can look into his loving eyes and not flinch, not look away, but meet his gaze and to hold it humbly, gratefully, because I see no anger there, only compassion. The other phrase that I think is worth savoring in verse 26 is tasting. They have tasted as I have tasted. Remember in 32, it's a tree of life that we're growing. Remember the joy he felt was exquisite and sweet. That is the love of God. This is Lehi's dream. But isn't Lehi's dream just a a repeat, a reiteration of the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. You have fallen because you ate from this tree. Well, the rest of life is spent trying to find our way back to the other tree to partake of its sweet fruit. But remember the Eden story? What is it that's keeping us from that second tree? Cherubim and the flaming sword. But what has Alma gone through? He saw God surrounded by numberless concourses of angels. In the Revelation account, they're even described as cherubim. How do you pass cherubim to be able to come to the tree of life? You join them in their attitude of singing and praising God. It happens because your soul longs to be there. You're not trying to fight the cherubim. You're not trying to head fake and swim move and get around him somehow. You're not you're creating a diversion somewhere and then trying to get an end around so you can make a mad dash to get to the tree of life. No, you're joining the cherubim. You're singing and praising God. Your soul longs to be among them. And so come. You're finally ready for it. It's only the unrepentant that are not welcome here. And it's their own feelings of unwelcomeness that are keeping them. They're the ones that still want to be banished or extinct, not knowing that forgiveness reigns here. The Garden of Eden is forever changed because of the Garden of Gethsemane. You're welcome to come. 
in a beautiful way, these cherubim are inviting angels, not the stern sentinels we often picture them to be. They're there to simply make sure that patience has had its perfect work, that the space and time that God has granted us has been filled with His grace, which allows for our repentance and the reconciliation of our wills. Well, there still is that flaming sword though, right? Well, the flame, the fire is purifying and the sword is God's word. Isn't that what Alma has gone through? A purifying, cleansing fire as his mind caught hold of the word of God that his father had often preached. Come and partake of the tree of life. Welcome home to Eden. Alma then finishes this chapter the way he began it. The chiasmus has come full circle. 27, may I reiterate that God supports us through trials and troubles of every kind, through all manner of afflictions. God has delivered me from prison and from bonds and from death. And I do put my trust in him and he will still deliver me. Deliverance past reassures me for deliverance future. Therefore, I offer him trust in the present. Verse 28, I know more testimony, start and finish, that he will raise me up at the last day to dwell with him in glory. Yea, and I will praise him forever. I've joined the concourses of angels. Glad they're numberless. There was still space for one more. He's brought our fathers out of Egypt. He swallowed up the Egyptians in the Red Sea. He led them by his power into the promised land, and he's delivered them out of bondage and captivity from time to time. This is not just a one-time offer. We seem to go in and out of bondage frequently. And the Lord is there to deliver us each and every time we truly come to him. 29, it wasn't just the ancient Israelites, our own fathers he brought out of Jerusalem. By his everlasting power, he delivered them from bondage and captivity from time to time. They had repeated problems as well, even down to the present day. I've always retained in remembrance their captivity, and you ought to do the same. Remember, son, and then repeating where he started. And please keep the commandments of God. See repentance through the lens of obedience. God's mercy is not an excuse to avoid obedience, but rather an opportunity to continue to develop righteous reflexes until our wills have been fully reconciled to his. Not to earn salvation, but to make ourselves ready to receive the salvation that he so generously offers us. So concludes that masterpiece of a chapter, Alma 36. But before we move on to chapter 37, can I just share something that struck me as I was studying this week? My wife has spent years of her life trying to help people emerge from the bondage of addiction. In her college years, she was a counselor in those wilderness retreats to help people detox and get off of whatever drugs that they were enslaved to. She's currently working towards a degree in social work to be able to be a therapist and counselor for those that are in addiction recovery programs. She is a healer and deliverer by nature. And having learned so much from her, it struck me that Alma 36 almost encapsulates in a single chapter all of the principles of deliverance from bondage that we need to know. Alcoholics Anonymous is famous for their 12-step program, which the church has 
baptized, in a manner of speaking, into its addiction recovery program. It's the same principles. And the more I looked at the church's addiction recovery program and the 12 steps from Alcoholics Anonymous and Alma's experience as described in chapter 36, it's all there. Let me illustrate briefly. Step one, we label honesty. Alcoholics Anonymous describes it this way. We admit we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. In Alma's case, verse 11, I was struck with such great fear and amazement, lest perhaps I should be destroyed. I'm out of control. This is where I'm headed. I cannot avoid this fate. Step two is hope. When you come to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. Verse 17, I remember to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. There is a greater power that can redeem you. Step three, trust in God. It's when you make a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understand him. Alma, verse 18, my mind caught hold upon this thought. The decision is beginning to be made. Step four, truth, to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This is the one that really tipped me off, that there is a 12-step approach in Alma 36, because he says in verse 13, I did remember all my sins and iniquities. It's as if Alma were making an inventory of personal iniquity, not hiding or minimizing any of them. Step five is confession to admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. In Alma's case, verse 14, I murdered many of his children, or rather led them away into destruction. He's admitting that to himself, to God, now to his son, as he has to others in the past. Step six, a change of heart, when we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. From Alma, verse 13, I saw that I had rebelled against my God and that I had not kept his holy commandments. You see that turn? My God, holy commandments, his heart is changing. He's ready for God to complete that metamorphosis. Step seven, humility. Humbly asking him to remove our shortcomings. In Alma, verse 18, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. Step eight, seeking forgiveness, to make a list of all persons you have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. I think this is when Alma sees God upon his throne and longs to be there. I want to make amends. I want to bridge that gap, return to my Father in heaven. Step nine, then, is restitution and reconciliation, to make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. As Alma says in verse 24, I have labored without ceasing that I might bring souls unto repentance. I wanted to return to God. I wanted to bring everyone else with me to help deliver those whose souls I had once destroyed. Step 10, daily accountability. To continue to take personal inventory and when we are wrong, to promptly admit it. Verse 29, Alma says, I have always retained in remembrance their captivity. It's always in my mind the traps that we set for ourselves, from which only God can deliver us. Step 11, personal revelation. To seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 
What did Alma say in verse 27 and 28? I do put my trust in him. He will still deliver me and I will praise him forever. Maintaining that kind of relationship keeps us from falling back into sin. And finally, step 12, service. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Or as Alma had said back in verse 24, all this ceaseless labor that he was performing was so that I might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy of which I did taste, that they might also be born of God and be filled with the Holy Ghost. To all my fellow sinners, Alma can show us the way out. His is an example of breaking the bonds of death, the chains of hell. And I don't think it's coincidental that words like bonds and chains are used here. There's no better description of addiction, right? To be encircled about by those chains. There's no way out. Well, there is, but it's a way up. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. And so turn to him. I know I said I wasn't going to spend much time on the chiasmic structure of Alma 36 beyond pointing out that it was there, but perhaps it would be worthwhile to at least paint a bit of that picture in broad strokes because one of the purposes of chiasmus will give us insight into the focal point that Alma had in mind as he explained his conversion to his son Helaman. And that's the fact that the central couplet in any chiasmus is the key concept that everything before it builds up to and everything after recedes back from. It's like the keystone of the arch. And so if the Book of Mormon is our keystone scripture, the central statement of any chiasmus in it is the keystone of that keystone. And the one in Alma 36 is perhaps the most powerful of all. The climax, the central focus of this chiasmus. At the end of 17, he remembers his father's prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, a son of God. And in 18, he cries within his heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. So everything in this chapter builds up to that recognition of Jesus, and then everything descends back down from that climax. In this incredible poetic form, Alma is helping his son and his later readers to see that the position of Jesus Christ in the plan of salvation is literally central. The core of his own conversion is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jack Welch, his full name is John W. Welch, that young missionary who discovered chiasmus in the Book of Mormon originally. Later in life, he was sitting down with David Noel Friedman, most famous for being the general editor of the Anchor Bible series. Basically, one of the most massive and well-respected encyclopedias of sorts for the Bible that there is. Well, Brother Welch was sitting down with Professor Friedman, and they were studying together Alma 36 in light of its chiasmic structure. And this incredible non-LDS biblical scholar said to Dr. Welch, Mormons are very lucky. Their book is very beautiful. What an amazing compliment from someone who knew biblical literature as well as anyone to see similar forms in the Book of Mormon. But again, beyond literature, it's its focus on Jesus Christ that's most beautiful of all. I love that that is the main thing, the primary thing that this father wants his son to know. May we teach our children repentance and forgiveness, including that which we have received through Jesus. He was our only hope. He is our only hope. He is their only hope as well.